Psalm 34, I'm going to read it again. If you haven't written it down, that's fine or whatever, but you can listen. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. So easy to memorize. Hopefully you do memorize that, or you can paraphrase that, and then have others join you in your worship of God every day. Every day in your praise of God. In Acts chapter 2, and verse 42 to verse 47, I read there a scripture that is familiar to a lot of us anyway. In early church history, the first church in the book of Acts, And it's recorded what they did, and we've read the scripture many times throughout the years, and you've probably read it many times throughout your life if you're a follower of Jesus and a believer. But it says here about the first church when they were getting together, it says in verse 42 of chapter 2 in Acts, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together in which way? with gladness and sincerity of heart. Verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Just a scripture there. You can read that again as you go home. And I'll emphasize throughout the sermon just a couple of points in that scripture. But there's a lot there for us to to emulate and to, to do in our own lives and as God's people today and always and into the future. When you hear the word worship, what comes to your mind? Singing? Prayer? Giving? Works? Yeah, that's good. All those things can come to mind. But we can miss the essence if we're just wrapped up in those things in and of themselves and those actions and attitudes. But it, Well, actually, really, it's about an attitude. I, was, I got ahead of myself. It's an attitude. It's about your heart. You can do all those things and actually not be worshiping God. Let me just summarize, and this is by no means anything exhaustive. Because we could spend years, and in fact, we spend our lifetimes perfecting and understanding and growing in proper worship to God. I haven't mastered it yet, but I'm not going to stop worshiping. You haven't mastered it yet. Don't try to tell me how I should do it. You can help me. We can look in the Word of God. We can encourage each other so we're right. But we're still working on it. Because it's such an amazing, powerful, deep thing that has to do, all starts with our hearts and it has everything to do with our hearts in worshiping God. Let me just summarize the essence of worship. And there are other scriptures that can, 
can kind of add and build on this. But in Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 30, Jesus says something when he's talking to somebody about the commands. And he says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. All of that. Love your God with all those things. All those things. Worship happens when we surrender ourselves to God. And when we surrender, it's only because we realize, well, I'm just me and God is God. There's no one like Him. He's holy. He's unique. That meaning is that He's unique. No one even comes close to Him. We're created. He's not. And we recognize that He's sinless. We're sinful or we, we sin in our lives and when we recognize that, how we can do is surrender. And we recognize that in our surrender and in our imperfection, He still receives us because of our faith in what Jesus has done to cleanse us and perfect us. Oh my goodness, all you can do is worship. Say, I love you and I thank you and I recognize you are almighty. There's no one like you and I can't stop saying that. And I will keep saying that over and over and over again. And it keeps me humble, by the way. When Jesus is worth enough to us to be put first in our lives. Actually, I don't like that. I've said that before, and I, I, I wrote that, but let me just let me clarify, because for me, I don't like the fact that he's first in our lives. He has to be central in our lives. Because if he's central, he touches everything that is around us in our lives. If he's first, I might get something down here and that first thing stays there and it doesn't quite trickle down, if you will. Maybe I'm getting kind of weird with you. But he's central in our lives. He must be central and dominate and permeate everything that we do. Then, then we will be able to come together and praise him and worship him and adore him and elevate him, if you will, together the way we're supposed to in our lives will be this fragrant aroma to God. He takes pleasure in that. I want to just point something out in the first church because when you read the book of Acts and you read early church history, you can do all the research you want. That's fine. You can argue with me and other people about what went on in the church and how they did things. And we, will have, you can, we can discuss for eons. But I want you to know something. There is no recorded agenda or order of service in the Bible. Shock, shock. (laughs) For those of you who want to come in every Sunday, and we do, we have our liturgy, if you will. Oh yeah, we'll have a few little words and announcements, and we'll have the offering, and then we'll, we'll read a scripture or pray a little call, and then all of a sudden we'll, we'll sing some songs, and we'll hear a message, and then we wrap it up and we run out. And, and, and we love it! Because we think we're doing something, and we're checking off a box, and it's all good, and, and that God takes pleasure in that. He may, if your heart is right. I don't know that. That's between you and God, right? But, but there is no recorded agenda or order of service. I believe, I personally believe that the Holy Spirit deliberately kept this a secret, if you will, because he did not want successive generations to feel in bondage to form. And form can bring you into bondage 
faster than you'll realize. It will. The objective of our worship is to magnify God. Make Him bigger and bigger in our lives, in our minds, in our attitudes, in our hearts, and that He just takes over and He shines on everything in our lives. And this is why worship cannot happen in a life that is not surrendered to God because when you're not surrendered, you're too big. We magnify either God or ourselves by the way that we live our lives. Psalm 34.3, have you heard that psalm this morning? It says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Listen, there are three things this morning that, that, that I want to just share with you that must exist in the church and the Christian's life regarding worship and regarding our, our magnification of God. And the first thing is this. Worship must be reverent. It must be reverent. And when I say reverent, I did not say worship has to be stoic. I don't think I'm stoic. So, you know, and, and, you, and you're not going to make me stoic. And you're not going to take that away from me. And you will not tell me to be stoic. Because that's, that's how I am. Some of you are more stoic. Fine. God made us all different. And God loves it. And he'll receive your worship, whether you're stoic or whether you're expressive and whatever else it is. And you're emotional and everything else. That's fine. But listen, worship that is reverent is worship that is awe-filled. It's awe-filled. And you could, you could be so awe-filled that you can't do anything but jump up and down and rejoice. I'm going to share a story with you from one of my uncles in New Jersey who's a pastor. And, um, well, anyway, I could tell you a lot of details, but I won't. He, growing up in the culture we grew up in, it, it was, there was, there was a, a level of stoicism, if you will. There was, there was rules of what we can worship and not, and you had to be very serious and whatever else. And, Forget the details, all right? We had to do stuff like that. that. We had to do stuff like that in church, right? That was how it was. Well, anyway, years ago, this is going back 20, 25 years ago, and I remember sitting down at his house in New Jersey once, and he said, and he broke down, he says, man, I went to Times Square Church because he used to go there once in a while back when David Wilkerson was alive, and he went, he says, and I went there, and I was sitting up at the balcony, and he said, he said, with all the years of being a Christian and a pastor, and just with my form of worship, with the way I expressed to God, and I was sitting by this guy, and he was an African-American man, and he was shouting, and he was jumping up. It was almost like the balcony was shaking there at Times Square Church. And I'm looking at him, and I'm just like, oh, my God, God, tell this guy to settle down. Because it was almost, almost distracting to him. You know why? Because he let it be distracting. And you know what he did? And he just went through that service and he kept thinking about that. And after service ended, he reached over, two seats over, and he talked to this guy. And this guy said, you know what? If you only knew why I do what I do, I am in awe of how God radically saved me. And he pulled me out of the mud and off the streets and from the very flames of hell. You would do the same thing. Now, I'm not telling you to jump around and, you know, whatever, and jump, jump, jump around. I'm not getting telling if you remember that, if you're older like I am anyway, or you're older than me, that's fine. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm not telling you to do that. But I am telling you, just because somebody's doing that does not mean they're not reverent. 
So some of you got to get that out of your heads. And some of you got to get out of your head just because you don't see people jumping around. Oh, they're not really worshiping God. That's not reverent. I mean, they're not really loving God. No, it's not like that. It's not like that. It's got to be reverent right here where you recognize and you realize and you know who God is. And then you worship him as such that he is so much beyond your mind. And he's so much holier than you can ever even describe. He's nothing like you. He's the only one. You know, the way that we use words is interesting, and we've, we've mentioned this over the years, whether myself or Pastor Dan or others, we've mentioned this. You know, each generation seems to have its lingo, right? When I was in high school, we used words like hip, cool, far out, rad. I, some of you don't even know what that is. You're like, what? <laughs> right? And that's exactly it. And when I've, when I've accidentally tried to insert or use this word in a conversation to, to explain or express my awe of something, people just stare at me and they're like, okay. <laughs> words express a common understanding. And phrases serve as code words or shortcuts even within each generation. There are some phrases that people say, and I'm like, say What? Oh, yeah, you know, back in the 50s. 50s? Uh, yeah, my parents were like little kids back then. Okay, anyway, the word awesome is something that is used. All right? And I'm not here to rebuke you for that. I'm not even rebuking myself. But I want, we have to keep it in perspective, that word that it's used a lot. And sometimes we can refer to the, oh, what an awesome day of weather it is, right? Oh, what an awesome sports team. They're so dominant. Oh, what an awesome meal. There has never been a meal like this. Oh, what an awesome car. What an awesome, you know, music CD and, and music. What a, what a great, whatever, meeting, whatever it was. And it's sometimes, you know, I, I use it when I get a great deal on stuff because I love to find deals. That's just how I am. I'm like, I got an awesome deal today, you know. And I want everybody to know that instead, instead of paying 10 bucks for something, I paid two. Yeah, you know, and I celebrate that. But, 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 but. When we take that word, let me just tell you something, that the only person or thing is awesome is God, the only person. There's only one that is awesome, God. He is the only one that I should stand in awe of. The only, the only way this word can be, one way that this word can be translated is that there's fear. Fear, not like I'm afraid and I'm trembling and I can't look at you and I'm turned away from me and I run away and I just, not that sense. It is that awe. It is, it is such awe that means that we are filled with this reverential fear before the presence of the almighty creator God of this universe and you. And this word, awesome and awe, it conveys a sense, frankly, of holy terror. Holy terror that you realize, again, you, you just melt because you're in God's presence and of who he is. Can I give you an example? For those of you who know, and if you don't, I'll just reference. And I would encourage you to read the first several verses in Isaiah chapter 6. And you will see what it means to have holy terror. To the point that Isaiah said that I am undone. I am in shambles. I am shredded to pieces inside because I realize who God is and who I am. And by comparison, oh, I'm just, I am just. But yet God allows me in his presence. God's calling me. He has a plan. I'm his. I belong to him. And you are in that place where it's a holy terror. And the early church had something that is often pretty foreign to us in this 21st century. Right? They were in awe of God. They were in awe of God. They knew that he alone was awesome. 
We can feel that awe pulsating through the book of Acts. So filled were they with this awe of God that they could face this hostile world that was persecuting them, and they did it with holy abandon, frankly. Nothing else mattered, not even their own lives, because they feared God. Notice that sense of awe pulsating through the book of Acts. I'll just give you a few examples. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe. We read that, actually. This verse can also be translated this way without an injustice to what the original says. Everyone kept on feeling a sense of awe. Boom, right here, like, oh, God is here. He's awesome. He's among us. We've got to submit and surrender to him. We've got to fall in line with him. Acts chapter 3 and verse 10, I'll just reference the fact that in that scripture, they were filled with wonder and amazement. Acts chapter 5, after the Holy Spirit deals with the lying of Ananias and Sapphira to the apostles, the whole church became attentive to God. Because God means business and he's holy. In fact, I'm sure their fear of God skyrocketed when they saw both of them fall down dead after they lied to the Holy Spirit. Acts 5.11 says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. No, it wasn't that fear like we sometimes use it, where it paralyzes you and you can do nothing. It was a fear that because of their awe, now they were motivated even more to serve and do what this holy God said ought to be done. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria, enjoyed a time of peace. Remember, they were being persecuted. It was a tough time for the first church. It was strengthened, the word says, and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Living in the fear of the Lord. Not fearing what people thought. Not fearing what culture said. They were fear of the Lord. Acts 19, 17. After some believers in that, in that scripture, they tried to use the name of Jesus when casting out demons. And they had, they had been beaten up in the process, if you will. The church had another dose of the fear of the Lord injected into their being, into their bloodstream. And when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with Fear, the Bible says. And the name, this is the important part, and the name of the Lord was held in high honor. High honor. Do you hold the name of Jesus in high honor? When you contemplate God, what comes to your mind? When you think about God, are you in awe of Him? Or are you telling him how to do his job better? It was A.W. Tozer who said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Church, friends, if we viewed God with awe and holy fear, we would respond as the Apostle John did on the island of Patmos in Revelation. When he came face to face with the Almighty God. And listen to what he writes in verse 17 of the first chapter. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
Hmm, sounds a lot like what happened to Isaiah. What else can you do when you realize the majesty, the power, the holiness of God Almighty? See, there's a number of words that are translated worship in the Bible. And the one that is most frequently used in Scripture means to bow down and to pay homage. Right? That you're reverencing and you're elevating and you're adoring and you're recognizing how awesome someone is. Unlike animals. By the way, humans are not animals. I guess we don't fear God. It should be resounding. It should be resounding. Humans are not animals. Just because they choose to behave like them in wickedness doesn't mean we are animals. They're just sinful and rebelling against God by nature because they, they haven't been unregenerated. But we're not animals. And so we have a drive to bow down and pay homage to someone or something. It's a God-given thing because that's how God created Adam and Eve. And in worship, God is asking us to do something that we were uniquely designed as human beings to do. But at the same time, our sinful nature rebels against it, doesn't it? And the first step for anyone or for any person first step down is taken when we surrender our high opinion of God. Tozer said that it's so necessary to the church that the, that the church is a law, has a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and moral standards declines with it. I think of at least three things that can happen when we surrender our high opinion of God and when our worship is not reverential. First, we no longer view Him as holy, awesome, and marvelously majestic, or number one, or central. And what happens is, is that we backslide. We backslide. We stop, when we stop thinking correctly about God, we will stop honoring Him with our lives. That's what happens. Jeremiah chapter, I can give you examples, but Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19, the prophet said this, God said through him, your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of him, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. When you have no awe of him, you better watch out. And related to this, a second thing will happen. We will sin more often when we don't have this reverential worship and this awe of God in our lives. And we'll sin more often. Sin will start to look good to us and we will no longer stand in awe of God and sin becomes a pattern and then you see where that goes. When you no longer fear God, there is nothing to keep you from sinning. Psalm 36.1, the psalmist said, An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. By the way, he's not talking about God's people. He's talking about the wicked. But this is a warning to us. He says this, There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no awe of God. 
They could care less. They don't worship Him. They're their own gods. They're the center of the universe and what I do what I want and how I want and wherever I want. Third, when you, as a follower of Jesus, or when the church surrenders its lofty, awesome view of God, it will become ineffective and powerless. Look, things might look okay on the surface, but things are not good underneath. The foundation of all Christian belief and behavior is the awesomeness of God. And if you don't have that, and if we don't understand this, our perspective in every other area will be adversely affected. It will be skewed. It will be off. It will be wrong. Your view of who God is will determine how you live. Some of us need to repent of our wrong views of God. Some of us don't even realize we had wrong views of God. Can I just tell you, look here, and as you keep reading this, those things get pointed out because God loves you and wants you to worship Him in a way that is filled with awe. See, the word repent has a lot of baggage associated with it, but all it simply means is Change your mind. Change your mind and you'll change your direction about something. God is not just there to meet your needs or to make you happy. He is the awesome God of the universe. Now, I know for some of you this sounds hard, but it's the truth. It's the truth. He expects total obedience and complete surrender. Going back to Acts 19, after the text says that the name of the Lord was held in high honor... A radical transformation took place in the lives of people. Again, once you have a proper view of God, your behavior changes. You don't go around changing people's behavior. That's not your job. Your job is to together have a proper view of God. As you have a proper view of God, then our behavior changes. You can't just go about modifying behavior. It doesn't work that way. It's backwards. It's backwards to do things that way. You've got to have a proper view of God. And then things start to change in your life. God does it. Many of those, in chapter 19, verse 18 says, many of those who believed now came, and listen to this, they openly confessed their evil deeds. God, you're awesome. I know you're awesome. I know I'm not. I need you. Forgive me, I'm changing my ways. Sounds like how it's supposed to be now. Sounds like how it's, we should continue every day in, in our lives. Do you see it? Since the name of Jesus was held in high honor, many people openly confess their sins. If we are not in awe of Jesus, most of us will continue living in bondage to our sins. What about you? As you focus on His holiness, His majesty, His awesomeness, what is he saying to you? What do you need to confess to him? Is there something standing in the way of your relationship with him? Repent of it. Repent of it. Repent of your casual view of God. Repent of that. Hebrews 12, and chapter, verse 22 to 29, the writer says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us, listen to this, let us be thankful 
and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I'm not here to scare you. God's not here to scare you. Well, maybe to bring that fear of God, that healthy level of, man, I got to get right because God's holy and I'm not. But we've got to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Worship that is awe-filled is a must. Secondly, worship must evoke rejoicing. But you just told us scary stuff. Scary stuff. Yeah, it's sobering. It's humbling. And it makes you feel like, whoa. But listen, those two things go together. Worship should evoke rejoicing. Our corporate worship must, first of all, be reverence. But second, worship is to be rejoicing. Look back at Acts chapter 2 and verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe. That's reverent worship. Right? Now drop down to verse 46 to 47. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. That's rejoicing worship. That's joy-filled worship. And this whole passage suggests that there was a sustained atmosphere of praise and worship which permeated throughout the early church. They were filled with joy and with eagerness as they met to praise God. There could be no doubt about their joy, for they are described as having glad and sincere hearts. And the Greek word that's translated joy here indicates that they were exuberant, they were overflowing, they were rejoicing, and a joy that simply had to be expressed. You know what it is? These believers couldn't wait to get together to worship. And there was a sense of expectancy that filled their gatherings. I wonder if we have that same sense of excitement and joy as we approach God. Do we? Vance Havner, he was a preacher uh, last century, and he preached for a long time. This is what he said. And I, it came across my, my eyes the other day. And this is what he, he said that too many services start at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 dull. Too many services start at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 noon dull. Because we just check off our boxes. Our expectation, our hunger, our awe, is it really there? Are we just going through the motion and it's not reverent and then there's no rejoicing and we don't take joy and pleasure in knowing that this awesome God still takes interest in us and wants us to express our love for Him as imperfect as we are. Friends, we have so much to be joyful about. I you got to stop me because I, I'm going to keep going about how much there is to be joyful for, man. Tell me to stop because I'll go till, like, for three hours. <laughs> Psalm 1611 says that in your presence there is no joy. At your right hand, it's so boring forevermore. <laughs> Come on, people. I mean, it's, you know it. 
You're laughing because you know it. In your presence is fullness of joy. I mean, you can, fullness. What it means to have all of that joy in your life, so much that it's coming out, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's the best place. It is the most pleasant and pleasurable, if you will, place to be, if we're going to use that term. And it's so good to be in the presence of God. Then we take joy in that. God has done so much for us that we should be breaking out and rejoicing on a regular basis. We serve a God who loves us, a Savior who forgives us, and a Lord who provides for all of our needs. And then we have a Spirit who empowers us. I don't even have to say anything else. That's enough. In itself. When you read the Psalms, my friends, there is no way, there's no way possible not to be gripped by the celebratory aspect of worship. God is a God who wants us to praise Him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and emotions and everything that we are. Psalm 33, verses 1 to 3. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise Him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to Him a new song. Oh, no, God forbid. It can only be hymns. Oh, God forbid. (laughs) Play skillfully and shout for Thank you, joy. You are awake. God wants us to be joyful in our worship. Psalm 66, 1 to 2. I have like six of them, but I'll just read this one more. It says, shout with joy to God. All the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say to God, This is the psalm. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Did you catch it? We are to shout with joy because he is awesome. Our rejoicing is to flow out of our reverence. We are to be involved in revering worship by seeing God as awesome. We are to be involved in rejoicing worship by praising Him with hearts that are filled with that joy and gladness. And let's talk about the third aspect of worship, that must be in our lives and in the church. And I'm calling it worship that causes us to rethink. To rethink how we worship. We must rethink worship. When we hear the word worship, it's easier for us to think only of what happens here on Sunday morning. And when we think of Sunday morning, many of us think worship is what takes place when we sing songs or listen to announcements or when we're praying and when we're hearing the sermon. Let me see if... I can help us rethink that. And by the way, this won't be for the first time in this church, whether it's, again, through Pastor Dan or myself or others. Worship can be defined as worthship, as ascribing worth to God, the highest worth. And if that's true, then the prayers, the praises, and the preaching are all elements of worship. But it also means that everything in our lives ought to be worship unto God. Second, worship is not something done to us, or even for us, but by us. So for those of you who come in, I'm not, I'm just, you know who you are. I don't know who you are. But for those of you who come in and have been coming in, all you do is sit there. And you're not worshiping God together with God's people in an awe-inspiring way because you reverence God. 
regardless of who's around you or who did what to you or whatever it is. If you're not doing that, man, you are missing out. And God says, I don't even want to hear you. Because you're not reverent and you're not rejoicing. Because I'm reverent. It's to be rejoicing. Everyone is filled with awe and we have to rethink what was going on. It's not done to us or for us, but worship is done by us. So that means we've got to engage our minds, our spirits, our tongues, our bodies, everything, so we worship God. And we think of, of, of Sunday morning. Listen, all those things that we do are great, but it's got to spill out. I'm going to say something. I think it's really important. We shouldn't evaluate a service based upon the quality of the music or even the sermon. Rather, we should ask, did I fully engage in corporate worship this morning? If you didn't, I'm just going to say it the way it is. You can talk to me afterwards, that's fine. If you didn't fully engage, you, you and God, shame on you. And especially if you've been a Christian for a long time. What are you coming here for? I'm not angry. I'm just like, it blows my mind to even be able to say that. That you can, you can be coming to a church your whole life and never engage in worship while you're with God's people in His presence and worshiping Him. In all the different ways. I, I just, I, it blows my mind. So, okay, that's, that's again, worship is done by us. Thirdly, worship When we rethink worship, worship is to be a part of our lifestyle. I kind of got to that a little bit earlier, but try not to think of worship only in terms of what happens here on Sunday morning. That's what I just said. Remember that the early church worship was both formal and informal. They met in the temple courts, and they met in their homes, and they met in all kinds of places, and we do that here as well in different contexts. And while they met daily for worship with others, our challenge today is to worship on a daily basis, even though we might not be with believers, other believers, at the same time and all the time. Worship needs to be thought of as less of a service and more of what can be referred to as 24-7 worship. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which, by the way, is a... Well, never mind. I'll stop there. But we've got to do it all the time. And so the, the, the key then to rethinking our worship, your worship of God, is to see it as God does. That there are both corporate and private elements to it. That there is a time to gather formally with others and a time to worship informally. But we are to worship at all times wherever we are. I know most of us know that. But I'm reminding you and I'm encouraging you and I'm challenging you. Keep it up. And if you haven't been doing that, start. Reverence God. Rejoice that God is so holy and awesome and that he still forgives you. And when you repent, he receives you. And listen, you worship him again because he forgives you and washes you all clean again. And then remember that it's all the time you're worshiping him. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're listening to, whatever you're singing, whoever you're talking with, how you're talking, what your attitude is, all those things are your worship. We worship God as our part of our lifestyle by offering ourselves to Him. Here's that word again. We surrender. In every area of our lives. Romans 12.1 defines worship as surrender. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, that He doesn't do to you 
what he could do to you. Every day, every moment, by the way, every one of you, every one of you, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your what? Spiritual worship. We offer ourselves to God by living a surrendered life that honors God, by treating others with dignity and with grace, by being faithful and loving to your spouse, by being the kind of parent that God wants you to be, by being the kind of child or teenager that God desires you to be, by seeing your job as a mission or, frankly, a calling, a vocation from God, by using your spiritual gifts to serve Christ, by giving faithfully and generously to God's kingdom work. And tragically, we often get things turned around, don't we? We tend to worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. That's not how God intends for it to be. It's not how God intends for it to be. As I'm wrapping it up, the key to rethinking worship is to see God as bigger than most of us do. When our view of Him is small, other things can easily overshadow and take place in our lives, right? When we see Him for who He really is, we will revere Him and we'll rejoice in Him and we'll rethink worship so that it becomes an integral part of our Lives on a daily basis, 24-7. Let's come full circle. In Psalm 34-3, David cries out, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. When we magnify something, we make it bigger so we can see it from a new perspective, or we can see God from a new perspective, and we make God bigger in our lives, we see things that were previously hidden by our myopic faith. When we see Jesus in all His splendor and beauty, we can't help but live lives of worship. You're either going to worship or you're going to walk away. That's on you. hate to say it that way. That's up to you. What will you do when you see God the way He's supposed to be seen? And you revere Him and you rejoice and you rethink where you're at. Have you compartmentalized who God is and that He should be revered only in certain aspects? When you see Him in His splendor and beauty, you can't help but live a life of worship. Amen? I don't know what else there is to say. I'm going to pray. And I want you to take this and digest it and process it. Think about it. Ask God to help you to open up your eyes. And as we go through this week, worship God in this way as well. We have Vacation Bible School. One way you can worship God is say, God, be elevated in our community through this program. Be elevated in every class. Be elevated in the songs the kids learn. Be elevated in the scriptures that are brought forth. 
be magnified, God. Not me, not my way, not somebody else's way. You, your word, your character, you, just your, you, God, be glorified, be magnified, so that together we can exalt his name and worship him. Amen. Lord, I pray that you would, I simply pray, God, that we would reevaluate, we would just reflect, we would contemplate, we would look and dig deep in our hearts and allow your Holy Spirit to dig deep in our hearts that we might truly be honest with with you and ourselves because nothing's hidden from you, whether we actually reverence you. And if we don't, Lord, help us to repent. Give us the courage, the strength by your Spirit to, to change our mind and to turn away from an irreverential worship. And then when we are received by you because of our repentance, God, help us to rejoice and help us to every day worship you all the time, rethinking our worship, remembering that it's all the time and everything that we do, everywhere we go, no matter where we are, God, it's all for you to magnify and exalt you. To you be the glory, because it's yours anyway forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.